I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Before getting started, I'd like to quickly address the delay in getting this episode out. Unless you've been on a long walkabout in a remote corner of the world, you know that we're in the midst of an enormous and devastating global pandemic. I myself was asked to cover the inpatient cardiology service at UCSF Hospital last week, so I was not able to get this episode out as planned. It's the last episode of the season, and it's the perfect bookend to the first one with Emily Oster. If you haven't heard it, please go back and listen. The topics we discuss are also relevant not only to clinical medicine or science that we often discuss here, but are particularly relevant to the current COVID epidemic. I'll touch on this from time to time, but much of what we discuss about policy, evidence, decisions is directly relevant to how we think about our current crisis with COVID. Today's episode is a conversation I recorded last summer in Boston. It is with my good friend and former trainee, Bobby Yeh. Dr. Robert W. Yeh is the director of the Richard A. and Susan F. Smith Center for Outcomes Research in Cardiology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He holds the Katz Silver Family Endowed Chair in Cardiovascular Outcomes Research at Harvard Medical School and is an associate professor. As mentioned, Bobby is a good friend. He was a cardiology fellow here at UCSF about 10 years ago. And during that time, we grew close and have remained so. While we don't get to see each other as much in person, Bobby and I are among a group of cardiologists who are quite active on Twitter. By the end of this conversation, you'll undoubtedly see how incredibly smart Bobby is, but also how wonderfully thoughtful, humble, and kind he is as well. Please enjoy this episode of Best Known Method with my good friend, Bobby Yeh. I was born in Los Angeles. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan, actually, so they were both... uh, Born and raised in China, but then moved to Taiwan, 1949, common story, after the communist revolution. And then both came to California. They didn't know each other at the time. They came to Northern California for graduate school. So my mom was doing her PhD in statistics at Berkeley, and my dad was doing his PhD in civil engineering at Stanford, and they got set up on a blind date of some sort. So anyway, my brother and I have an older brother. And he and I were born and raised in Southern California and Los Angeles. Uh, and then ultimately I went to uh, Stanford for, followed actually both my dad and my brother, that's you know, legacy, into Stanford for undergraduate. Um, took a little segue, first did a year working uh, most of the time in Mexico City doing epidemiology, sort of like field epidemiology type of work and, and a little bit of microbiology in Mexico City actually. Um, and then went to the UK for two years, did a master's in health policy in at jointly at the Glenn School of Economics and School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, followed by an MBA at Oxford, then went to HMS for medical school, Harvard Medical School, and then sort of continued on from, from there. So this was a Fulbright or a... It was a Marshall scholarship. Marshall, that's right. I can't keep... Uh... And so Marshall is like the junior roads or... What is it? Yeah, we don't like to think of ourselves right. as being junior. It's it's a uh, it's a scholarship that actually people often apply to at the same time that they apply a Rhodes scholarship for a Rhodes scholarship, and it's uh, very similar. I would say it's it's uh, funded by the UK, 
in, in recognition sort of as gratitude for the Marshall Plan. So it's been around since, you know, 1950 or so. Um, and it funds 40 individuals or to U.S. citizens to study in the U.K. anywhere for two years. And you can study whatever you want. You can study whatever you want, yeah. And when you apply, did you tell them, this is what I think I want to do, or did you get you to do. decide after? You yeah, I did. I, I knew that I wanted to apply. You apply for a program, and I applied for that health policy master's degree. So my interests were in international health and health policy. So I had a, a sort of interest in development studies, actually. It was what was part of my undergraduate major, and thinking about how health in low-income countries could be improved through policy efforts reduction of infectious disease transmission, et cetera. And that's what translated into the work that I was doing in Mexico City. Uh, and the project I was working on at that time was looking at migration patterns, actually, of community sort of uh, Mexican um, uh, migrant farm workers and how their migration patterns actually tracked with tuberculosis transmission. And you could sort of map that by looking at the serotypes of you know, the sort of DNA fingerprints of TB strains that were in communities and how it sort of tracked with migration patterns in this migrant farm worker community. So it was this, this sort of this intersection of policy and disease and sort of culture that was sort of interesting to me. And, and um, I thought this program in, at London School of Economics, and, and it was sort of jointly with the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And actually, the, my classmates there in that coursework were people who were like ministries of, ministers of health and Nigeria, and there was a lot of sort of international experience in that. Then people worked in Médecins Sans Frontières, were in that program, and I was just a sort of lowly undergrad, finished recently completed undergraduate. And so how many years were you in London? It was one year in London, followed yep. by a year in Oxford. I got it. Yeah. Uh, was that planned at the beginning, that you would do one year in London, then one in Oxford, or was that... No, something? no. It's a, it, was, it's a, it was a one-year degree program, and it's a two-year scholarship, so I had this year that was unplanned, actually, when I knew that I was going out there. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do that second year after I arrived there. And, and somewhere along the way, I thought, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to get sort of the private experience. This is a really a public, it was about public financing of healthcare in this health policy degree. And I sort of wanted to better understand the private financing part of things. And, and Oxford had this newish MBA program that I applied for and, 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 and enrolled in. So it wasn't like you went to work with a specific mentor. You actually just went to, to get an MBA for a year or was it something more yeah. than that? Yeah. No, that yeah. was it. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And it was sort of an interesting MBA, MBA experience. It was in order for Oxford, which is, you know, what you think it would be to want to have an MBA degree as part of a very academic sort of traditionally academic place. I think it was not the sort of case-based type of learning that you think of when you think of an MBA program. We did a fair amount of finance learning, the mathematics behind finance. We did a fair amount of organizational social science. You know, we were writing papers for our exams where we had to quote like Weber, you know, and, 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 and things of that nature. And, and it was really not, I, I think it's since changed. I think the feedback they got was, you know, this is great if you want to write uh, papers about business, but maybe not so great if you want to be a management consultant. But for me at the time, that was like perfect for me because I had virtually no work experience at the time. I was 23. I think uh, something that was really case-based and sort of the type of MBA program that people really benefit from if they've worked for a few years would really been not right for me at the time. Well, that and that's the model, right? That most of the MBA programs here in the U.S., they, they want you to have worked for a few years. Is that they the, do. Yeah. yeah. It, almost everybody's yeah. worked for yeah. a few years before they, they do that. And w was that a place where you did a lot of statistics as well? Or was that, that something that came later? 
It's a place where I did, I did some there. Actually, I did most of the statistics training in the UCSF, in cardiology fellowship at UCSF. Okay, well, and, we'll get to that. Yeah. All right, so then you're in London now. Did you know that you were going to go to medical school? Had you already gotten in? Or? I did. I had yeah. applied and deferred to medical school. Okay. And, and there, was a, uh, there was a moment where I thought I actually wouldn't go at the end of this two-year experience. You know, these two years in England were just incredible. I mean, they, they you know, you're there, you're a, just a, a student at the UK. You know, you're not even like a, like a visiting, you know, they have these programs in college where you visit and you sort of have this sort of toe in the water type of approach. And, but this was, nope, you're, you're a graduate student here. You live in graduate housing. You eat in the dorm with everybody else. Um, you spend, you know, weekends and weekdays, nights at the pubs with an international group talking about, you know, the challenges that, that young people think about in the world and how they can solve them and participate in them. And it was such a magical time. Um, and the idea of going back to medical school and just like learning biochemistry was really painful at the time. And when, when I, when I was approaching that deadline, I almost got cold feet and almost decided who not pushed, to go. Who pushed you to go? I, it was my own. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of my own risk aversion, probably. It was a little bit about this was the path that I had sort of set out and I'm going to stick to it. And so, but did you actually go as far to think like, what's the alternative? Like, I, what I did. might I do? So what were you thinking? Well, so the summer before, you know, as part of business school, we had to do this summer um, work. You have to, you know, if you work, do like an internship. And I worked with a group. We did this group project and I was doing management consulting at this company in Los Angeles. And some of my um, people that I went with, we had written a business plan actually for a, for a startup. And it was, it was like a totally ridiculous idea. It was, it was, uh, what was it? well, it sounds totally ridiculous now. In, in in a different way, it was, you know, maybe we could make money by having people like click on advertisements on the internet. <laughs> you know, I was like, but, it, but, it, but we were so naive that yeah, actually that's sort of been done for, for one thing. But well, what year was that? This was 1998. So, I mean, that really had been done, but it hadn't been done to the extent that it's. No, no, no. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's since been, you know, sort of now it's been revolutionized, right? It's now it's, a, it's, it's, uh, its own thing. But what we wanted to do, actually, the idea was to personalize advertisements on people's screens by gathering information on what they were searching for on the web, kind of profiling them in a certain way, and then having some sort of screen pop up like it was like a pop-up. I mean, there were no there were no like web pop-ups at that time, I don't think. But the idea was to put up like a pop-up in the corner that was this company, and it would give a targeted you know, advertisement to the viewer based on somehow knowing what you had surfed. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you would just click that off if you saw that. <laughs> you know, now you just like turn off the pop-up blocker or whatever, turn on your pop-up blocker and block. But, but it's essentially the idea was to take advantage of web-based pop-ups to apply targeted advertising and that the people who, you know, then that, that advertisers would, would pay for that. Anyway, that was the idea. Well, it was an idea that was way ahead of its time. I mean, you were... Um... Or I shouldn't say it was. It was not a dumb it was, idea it at was all. At, it was probably slightly late for the time. I would say, and but at at the time, it was it was contemporary. Yeah, you decided not to do it, or no one wanted to fund you, or what? What happened? We actually approached different people for funding, but just the idea of it, like as we were sort of going through with it, it just felt so extraordinarily high risk to me, and it was not an idea that I was terribly passionate about necessarily. I mean making money from advertisers to show people things. It's not, and, and I had gone to the UK, you know, with this idea that I was, you know, what I was interested in was 
really addressing health in low-income countries or, you know, this, this sort of intersection of health policy is health that I've been talking about. And this was a dramatic departure from this. So, so even though I, I was sort of fearing going to medical school because of this idea of leaving this rich environment, this amazing multicultural environment, that company, going to that company was not going to be the answer to that problem. So, so I, you know, packed up and moved to Boston, started medical school. I love these stories. Peter Thiel tells the story. I don't know if you've read his book, Zero to One, but he tells the story about how he had, you know, in law school, desperately wanted to go clerk on the Supreme Court. I can't remember which justice, but he wanted to more than anything else. He wanted to do it because he was convinced that, you know, what was going to launch his career and he didn't get it. And I think, you know, the story goes that that basically somebody came up to him, you know, six months later after he had started PayPal and things had gone well. And yeah, they were like, that was the best failure you've ever had in your life, right? And I think we all have stories like that where, you know, you have a path and the path splits and you can go one direction or the other. Of course, we never know what would have happened if you'd gone the other direction. Yeah. It's kind of fun to hear. I never n- knew that, that you had that in you. I don't think I probably told you that during my fellowship interview. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do. Uh, all right. So you, kind of, you ended up making your way back o- over here to Boston and started medical school and made your way through the first year. And anything interesting happening during medical school or that is worth hearing about? Um, Meet your wife? I No, I didn't meet yeah. my wife in medical school. I went her during residency. So, I mean, medical school was really fun. It was pass-fail back then. So we we did a lot of playing in medical school. So it was, it was a really fun time, and I have a lot of great friends from, from medical school. You know, it was interesting experience to, uh, particularly, you know, the first two years were sort of going back to being kind of, you know, like learning biochemistry and, and pathophysiology, it became more interesting as it went along. But the first, you know, couple months of medical school were definitely, it felt like a lot of delayed gratification, for sure. Yeah. It, didn't, it wasn't that fun. The school, the work itself wasn't that fun. It became a lot more interesting when you went on rotations. But, you know, I think medical school, being a third year medical student is its own sort of psychological torture uh, yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. So then uh, you ended up deciding, do you want to do internal medicine? And did you know before you did that, that you were thinking about cardiology or were you kind of agnostic at that point? I had an inkling. I had a, a really, I think, uh, influential mentor who was a resident. Uh, uh, and he's only a couple of years older, we're almost the same age. I call him a mentor. But, but when I was a third year medical student, uh, he was the resident on the service, uh, on the internal medicine service. And he wanted to do cardiology. And he was such a great, effective teacher and uh, a really a role model for how, how he took care of patients and how he approached questions. I was like, wow, that, that person's awesome. You know, I want to be like him. And he would take the time to sort of say, hey, this is what's cool about cardiology. I didn't even, I hadn't even heard of cardiology as a discipline. I didn't even know what cardiologists were. I knew what cardiac surgeons were, um, but sort of spent time with, with me and actually not just me, but the other uh, medical students and actually out of the three medical students in sort of our group, two are cardiologists and the third is a vascular surgeon. That's amazing. So he, he clearly had a profound influence on, on the three of us. And he's a va- he's now a vascular interventionalist. Um, it's Sahil Parikh. I don't know. Some people oh, know Of course. Him, so. I know Sahil. Yeah. yeah. From your That's Hopkins so days. Yeah. So Sahil. Yeah. So I met actually Sahil when I interviewed for medical school. I told you I deferred for medical school. Yeah. But when I interviewed, so m- many years before I actually went to medical school, he was the first year Hopkins medical student that I stayed with during my visit there. And we hung out, we played football and I thought, oh, I really like this guy. And then whatever it was, four years later, I, sh- I walk into third year medical school clerkship or five years later. And, uh, he's sitting there saying, Oh, I'm the, I'm going to be your, your junior resident on, awesome. on the service. And I was like, I remember you. 
Yeah, we awesome. played football. Is he still here? He's no, he's in at Columbia now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, off to residency, met your wife. That was important. Yep. We yeah. met uh, first day of uh, first day first day of intern year. I mean, I was smitten. Uh, love at first sight for me. Not not no, not necessarily reciprocated immediately, but I've got a similar story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the two of you, along with how many of you were there? There were three or four that came from your residency to fellowship that year. Was yeah, it? there were a few of us. There were five of us from either the Brigham or MGH. Right. So my wife, Doreen, yeah. um, uh, Jennifer Ho was a Brigham resident, but my medical school classmate, Ramin Farzane-Far, was a Brigham resident. Yeah. Rahul Sakuja was okay. my medical school classmate and MGH resident. So the five of us came together and, invaded and were coupled with two UCSF uh, residents, David Lau and Colleen Johnson. That's our fellowship group. That's amazing. Well, and uh, and that's when we met. And from the beginning, you you and your class, actually, to this day, I think your class is still referred to as like the best fellowship class that we that Not we sure. had. Well, it was it was. And um, and, you know, we can talk about that later. But tell us a little bit about this. So our fellowship is three, you know, three years minimum. You do two years of clinical work and then you do this research year starting the third year. And so tell us a little bit about how you kind of thought about what you were going to do and who you were going to try to work with and sort of how you were putting together your plan for what you might do with the rest of your career. Yeah, I, I was I was sort of all over the place. I think, you know, you have to sort of manufacture this very coherent story when you're doing these applications. But I really uh, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, we wanted to go to San Francisco in part because uh, I'm from California. My brother at the time was actually a surgery uh, attending, just joined at UCSF. He actually, he left and went to UCLA before I got there. But at the time it was, you know, going to be going back to the Bay area. My wife is from the Boston, uh, area, but this would might, I saw it as sort of the one and only potential opportunity for us to experience the, the West coast and maybe consider that, uh, living there. And we obviously knew UCSF was a great training program that had great clinical uh, experiences, but also a wealth of potential research opportunities, even if I was sort of undifferentiated. But I don't know if you remember, I mean, I considered all sorts of things when I got there for the research part of it. I mean, we, I think I went with you, talked to you a lot about this. I mean, I pipetted in your lab for a day. I'm, I don't I remember, remember that. that. I went for a day in your lab. I met your tech at the time. Uh, I was a young guy. Thought about that. And you said, hey, just check it out and see what you think, you know, and, um, and then met a bunch of different people, including including going down. I still had this bug in me, you know, having just gone to business school a few years earlier of exploring this biotech idea and also medical device. And so I went down and I got to organize the schedule, you know. So when I was a second year, I became that that person who organized the schedules. And I scheduled and arranged my schedule to allow me to do an elective in the summer of my second year of fellowship. And I went down to a company and spent, you know, five or six weeks with a company down there. Which company? Are, it was Fox know. Hollow Technologies. Oh, I do remember this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so I have a friend who was one of the senior VPs there at the time, and um, he was this guy I, I met in England. You know, he was a Rhodes Scholar, uh, HMS graduate, and then did medical school at um, and immediately went into. I think he went to McKinsey. Actually, went to McKinsey and then went into business. Um, so he was the senior one of the senior vice presidents of this place, Fox Hollow Technologies, which does peripheral vascular devices, atherectomy devices. And he said, you know, why don't you come down here and if you could spend a summer, you could spend a few weeks with us and check out what it's like. 
And actually what I did down there was learn a lot about the regulatory pathway for medical devices. And then during that time, it was interesting to, to sit there because it's a small company and I was sitting there and the company actually got acquired while I was there by EV3. And I remember the day of that acquisition and sitting in the office and, you know, there was a lot of mixed emotions at the office at the time, but, but I got to see in a pretty short period of time what that sort of field was like and whether or not, because I was st still considering at the time whether or not that was going to be one of the pathways that I pursued. And there was this program at Stanford, the Stanford Biodesign Program. I think it still exists. Stanford Biodesign Program. And I think I was thinking about that program as potentially, you know, a pathway after, after fellowship. And um, I, I talked to other people, and, and you actually introduced me to Hal Barron, who at the time was the chief. Is he still? I think he's a new position, right, somewhere. He's now on his uh, – he's two positions away from when he was at Genentech. Yeah. When you met, when, when you met with What's him, his went. position now? Well, so he had gone from Genentech to work at this company called Calico, which was a Google company that's studying aging. And he was the president, of basically, of research there yeah. and was there for four or five years and then left and is now – I think he's the president at GlaxoSmithKline right. um, at GSK. Right. Yeah. And you knew him from his time at UCSF as a UCSF. Yeah. I mean, Hal was a cardiologist on the faculty, having been a fellow a few years before I got there. And, um, you know, we overlapped a few times and became, became friends. And he was a very important mentor to me all the way, all the way through and remains, although he's much harder to, to reach these days, but he, he remains yeah. a good friend and a mentor to me. So you, I think in talking to you uh, about all these various ideas, you said, you know, you should go talk with Hal Barron. And I think you sent Hal an email and, and, and introduced us. And then I went over to Genentech, drove over to Genentech and sat down with him and said, hey, are there opportunities at Genentech to do research? You know, I'm really interested in cardiovascular disease. And I know that you guys ran this big registry, you know, the National Registry of Myocardial Infarction, NERMI registry was a big Genentech thing and Genentech historically had been very interested in cardiovascular, but not so anymore. And and not so even though the transition had taken place around that time, even earlier than that time, that that really moved into becoming a cancer company and not a cardiovascular. And Hal said, we don't have a ton here that we're doing, and this is not really the future of this company, that that direction. But based on what you're telling me, and based on like it seems like what you're interested in and what I know about this field, you should really talk to this guy at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, Alan Goh, because there's there's something to this data analysis field. And if you become really expert at analyzing, he didn't use the term, but big data, there could be something there. You know, there could, there might be something that you're interested in there and you can answer some interesting questions. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm going to talk to Alan Goh. And I think I told you about that meeting and I think you might have been the first person to tell me, well, you know, Alan Go doesn't respond to your, he's not going to respond to your emails. And he didn't <laughs> at the time. But Hal was nice enough to send Alan an email introducing us after I think, I think a couple of emails I sent, I didn't get responses back. And then I said, Al, you know, Al, I, I tried to set up this meeting, but it, it doesn't seem like it's working out. And Hal was nice enough to send, to send Alan an email. And thereafter, Alan responded. He said, oh, apologies. I'm really busy. Alan is an extraordinarily busy guy. Um, he said, but let's talk about some ideas. We got on the phone. I went over to Oakland, met in person, and then we, we started working together. He became my research mentor. And once he 
started picking up the phone, he engaged with you, assuming, because things ended up going well, and we'll hear about that, but he ended up engaging with you and was available and around? or Yeah, tremendously. I mean, he became... He became like, I mean, he's like a, he's like a big brother now. I mean, he's, he's, we got to know each other really well. And, you know, I think he saw that I was committed to it and I wanted to, I, I was going to keep pushing on this. And, um, I think we had some, we had some good conversations where we talked about some shared interests and some ideas and hopefully I convinced him that it'd be worthwhile for him to engage with me. Um, and, and he did. It ended up being a year or did you, I can't remember, did you do it was, a second one? It was, no, it was just a year. We started in second year. Remember that at that time it was right. this, I don't know if it's still like that. We were all sort of stressed about writing grants, getting funding for our third and potentially fourth years of research fellowship. So all these conversations happened between my first and second year of cardiology fellowship. And so we started working together during my second year of cardiology fellowship, extending into the third year. So really all told it was like, you know, so that that first year working with him was sort of a clinical, slat, you know, remotely, and then I spent a dedicated year after that. Sorry, I don't remember. Did you end up doing any formal training in statistics? Biostatistics yeah, I, did, then? I did the year long course. Okay. At the epidemiology and biostatistics. That's de- the training department. in clinical research. Uh, exactly. Course. Okay. Exactly right. And was that something that Alan supported and was excited about, or was he sort of dubious? He was excited about he it. He was. Yeah. I think yeah. he might himself might have done something like that okay. when he was at UCSF. He taught in it. Everybody who had done it sort of raved about it. And I think people in, in years above me in fellowship like Mintu, uh, Tarakia had, had, had done that and said it was a great course. And so it was pretty universal that that, that course, the opinion of people who had taken that course was that it was a very good one. And it was is still pretty practical, right? That you'd come in with a project and you'd use that as the basis of kind of a lot yeah. of your... That's right. That's right. You would have to design a project. It, it, I don't think you had to have that, but it certainly helped. Um, and so everything that I would work on with, with Alan would be, you know, what we applied in, in the coursework. You know, there was an opportunity um, to, to form new projects during that course. And for that, I tried to, you know, take new ideas that, that I developed in new methods and apply it to the data that we had at, at Kaiser. We did that for a couple of projects too. And when you were looking at projects with Alan, was that, I mean, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do? Was it more like, Hey, look, this could be interesting. Or did you have a mission that you thought this is the question I want to ask and answer? How'd that whole thing come together? We had a phone conversation. I remember this conversation. I was sitting in the parking lot of the San Francisco VA um, and just like spitballing ideas, you know? And, and he said, well, I've got this idea. And I said, well, I've got this idea. And and we, we came together on three or four ideas, but the one that I think I had clinically observed and that his data, their data was really great at answering was this question of whether or not MI incidents had changed over time. And, and this was one, it was an obvious question from a fellow standpoint, because I remember that although call was busy and we were getting called in a lot, it was quite clear that we weren't getting called in with the same frequency that at least previous generations of fellows had described. And also, you know, attendings used to say this. The attendings would say, you know, just you don't get as much acute MI experience as as we did. And so I remember trying to look this up and say, well, is this really true, especially ST Elevation MI? And it's such a fundamental question. Has ST Elevation MI changed over time? Very fundamental. I think everybody, it's, it's, it doesn't take a genius to ask the question. But it turns out that it's a really hard question to answer. And it also turned out that the Kaiser database was this ideal database to be able to answer that question with a lot of precision, with a good enough sample size. And why was that? 
you know, if you think about disease incidence, disease incidence is, is you have to know your denominator number really well. Um, and in the case of Kaiser, they know their denominator very precisely because it's whoever's paying membership who's paying premium. So they, they, they daily know their denominator every single day. You, you drop out of membership, well, you're no longer a member. So uh, unlike state census every, you know, five, 10, 10 years kind of thing where the denominator is very imprecise. The second thing is you have to know your numerator, numerator really well. And not only do they know everybody who comes into a Kaiser facility who's there, who's a member, who has an MI, but because they are both a payer and a provider, if, if you go to a different hospital the, uh, that's not Kaiser Hospital, they, they pay for it. So they still know that. They, they still know that. And if you think about other databases to answer that question, they don't have sufficient granularity to separate ST elevation MI usually from non-ST elevation MI. So that's a problem with something like Medicare claims, which also just doesn't capture the full denominator because it's only Medicare fee-for-service. And then there are these uh, these cohort studies like Framingham or Mayo Clinic Rochester has these great cohort studies. But the denominators are so small that to talk about something as like the frequency or the incidence of ST elevation MI with any sort of precision, you get like 10 cases a year or 20 cases a year denominator of many thousands. You need millions uh, to be able to get any precision in that number. And Kaiser has a denominator of, you know, over 3 point, you know, 3.5 million, I think it was at the time. Bobby highlights the importance of knowing both the numerator and the denominator. He saw that in order to detect clinically meaningful changes in the event, the numerator, he needed to find a database with a sufficiently large denominator. In thinking about the COVID epidemic, we've heard a lot about numerators and denominators. In this case, it has to do with reporting on the total number of positive cases. But to make any sense of those numbers, the numerator, we need to test more people. We need the denominator to be bigger. So when people wonder about why New York seemingly outstripped other parts of the country in terms of new cases, they neglect to ask about how many tests were being done. You can't have a positive test if the test is not done. I think it's really important that you, that question came out of your experience, your own personal experience and your experience of talking to other people who anecdotally felt like they'd observed a trend, but that there were no data to support that. And so that your, your question was really, I want to go out and answer this specific question that seems like everyone has an idea that might be might be there but i, I want to do it robustly yeah it yeah. was a, it was a sort of a common anecdotal observation that that we decided to sort of put to the test and it was fortuitous that there was a data set that could answer the question i think and what we found was that it was true that mi epidemiology changed over time and in particular there had been this big shift of mi's such that it was about a 50-50 split between ST elevation and non-ST elevation MIs uh, 10 years before, 19, say, 98, I think is when the start, study started. And then by, 19, by 2008, it was something like 70-30 in favor of non-ST elevation MI. And part of that was artifact, which was, you know, the biomarker uh, wave came in, and so troponin became the standard. And so more sensitive diagnosis of non-ST elevation of mine. You could see that in the curves. There was this sort of rise in non-ST elevation of MI, but that plateaued in 2000 and started declining again. The net was this decline, but what was really profound was there had been a 60% decline in ST elevation of MI incidence over that same time period. I mean, over the course of a decade, I don't know, you know what, we don't have like a 
these curative treatments for coronary disease, the same way we have for like, I don't know, hep, hep C or something like that. Um, but to get a 60% decline in something we're just really treating risk factors was a pretty profound decline. And it was really the first description of that profound a decline in MI incidence specifically for STEMI. And so there are all kinds of explanations to try and attribute why this happened. I mean, I've heard smoking and stents and aspirin. Yeah. Obviously, your study wasn't designed to be able to answer that question, but did you speculate? I'm sure you must have thought, like, what must be driving yeah, we, this? We speculated a fair amount. I mean, if you look at treatment with medications, if you look at all MI patients and you see what, like, predicts whether or not they treat, present with a non-ST elevation MI versus a STEMI, it, it's quite clear that, you know, first presentations of people who don't see medical care often come with a STEMI. Whereas if people had been getting treated with things like beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and antiplatelet therapy, they seem to be more likely to present with them STEMI. So we had this one hypothesis, which was maybe actually the treatment, risk factor prevention and, and these treatments actually kind of changed the natural first presentation of MI from STEMI to NSTEMI. But I think the smoking thing is very, even though we can't answer that in a causal manner from our analysis, if you look in any STEMI registry, the smoking rates are astronomical. It's if if five percent of the population I don't know what the population incidence of smoking is, but if five percent smokes, it's like forty percent in an MI registry. And it's not true in an in an NSTEMI registry. STEMI seems to be particularly enriched for smoking. There are probably good ways to be able to answer that that we haven't really hadn't really pursued, which are, you know, can you use smoking state smoking bans and sort of do these natural experiments studies? I think people have done that and looked at MI overall, but I suspect that there's a stronger influence on STEMI. Uh, for smoking in particular. That's a f- fascinating. All right. So you wrap this up. You have this amazing time in San Francisco. Yeah. Decide you're going to come back to Boston to do interventional training. Yeah. And which I think in some ways is actually interesting in that historically, if you ask people, is it possible to have a career as a top-notch A-level researcher and also be an interventional cardiologist, spending time in the cath lab some number of days a week, most people would probably tell you, in fact, I probably told you that's not possible, yeah. uh, but you decided to do that anyway. Yeah. Did you think at all like, all right, well, if I end up just being a full-time clinician, that's fine. Or did you really believe I can do this? Uh, I believed I could do it, but I wasn't sure I made the right decision. Actually, when I got, it was a very similar thing to getting to medical school. When I, and I, I told this story just a couple of weeks ago to the Duke fellows. I sort of, the Duke fellows invited me to give a talk down there and I was, we were having this nice event where I was, Telling them that when I started interventional fellowship, I thought I had made another mistake. I mean, I thought, oh, this is not what I should be doing. Because I still had not, we had not finished that MI project. Uh, I was trying to write it up. It was going really well. I think we had submitted that paper to the New England Journal at that time, and it had gotten favorable reviews. And it was, you know, that was the most exciting thing for me, not like wiping wires and, and being scolded for pulling the wire out by accident. And so... You know, I was the fellow who, between cases, I was in the fellow's office frantically trying to work on papers, especially that one. Um, and other fellows were much more interested in observing cases that were happening. And I thought to myself, does this mean that I, like, I shouldn't be doing this? And I think it was also conversations with you. I had conversations with, you know, Jeff Olgan at the time. We had had conversations about and, and Alan, Alan wanted me to stay on. Alan Go wanted me to stay on and, and had offered me a position to stay on there. And those were tempting positions. We really loved our time in San Francisco. And, and, and I felt at the time that the research stuff was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I would, and this idea of again, sort of going to this clinical role where 
I just felt like I was almost done with training and it'd been a long, it'd been a long slog. And do I really want to do this? But during that year, what I, what I think I appreciated during that year was that I have to be able to do a little bit of both of this. I can't give up the research thing. So that was not even an op. That was never an option to not do the research and to be a clinician. If anything, one of the options was to, to, to not complete an interventional fellowship and, and then, uh, to do sort of a, you know, a more research heavy role as a cardiologist. But you ended up doing it and it's not a surprise to those of us who knew you and that continue to know you that you were able to do it. Um, and you've been able to balance both and you've become a leader and you have this very interesting career now in that you, maybe I'll let you describe it, but I sort of feel like you have, you almost have three different roles, maybe at work, not at, not at home, but maybe, maybe I'm miscounting. I, I sort of feel like you have, you have three different areas that you spend your time thinking about, but maybe I'll let you describe it. Yeah. I'm interested to hear what you think the three are. I mean, so, so one role is clearly I do, um, clinically I'm, I'm, I still do a lot of coronary intervention. Um, so I, I direct our complex coronary intervention group, um, program here at Beth Israel. And I spent about a day or two in the cath lab strictly working on coronary. So I don't do structural heart disease or peripheral vascular intervention. That was a very conscious decision for me to be able to do the research side of things. I needed to very much focus what I did clinically. And that meant giving up things that were exciting at the time and not being able to do those things. I don't have a longitudinal continuity clinic. Um, most of the referrals that I get, I see patients in clinic who are referred for complex interventions, but they're referred by cardiologists or sometimes interventional cardiologists, other interventional cardiologists. And I, I see those patients one time before their complex procedure and they go back and, and I don't have a big service obligation. So right now my clinical time is very confined to the cardiac cath lab. Actually, it wasn't always the case, but it's become more and more like that. And then as far as the research hats, you know, we, I, I direct the center here. We're sitting here now, the Smith Center for Outcomes Research. It's based in cardiology. And I say that we have sort of three broad domains that we do research in. Uh, one of them is we do a fair amount of health policy evaluation. We, we do, uh, I would call it risk prediction and the identification of heterogeneous treatment effects. So what individuals are at greater risk for suffering an adverse event or having a better outcome? And which individuals derive the greatest benefit from certain treatments and which individuals might derive harm. And then we have an angle which is really focused on in it, using new comparative effectiveness methodology. Um, we do a fair amount of instrumental variable analysis, other, I think, out-of-the-box approaches, at least for medical device research. So you have four things. What was the fourth? Well, that I count. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I missed. I I lumped two together. Maybe let's start with the policy, and maybe just kind of broad overview of kind of how you think about it and describe yeah. a little bit sort of what you guys. Yeah, about. you know, our, I think our going thesis is that one health policy is not sufficiently well validated uh, or assessed. Uh, I think you know we have, all have experiences doing clinical trials, and I. I you know, I do some work at the BAME Institute for Clinical Research, which is a clinical trial organization. We did things like the DAPT study. And in thinking about how we do the rigor behind many of those clinical trials that we do and how we as clinicians use evidence, gosh, we, we have such a lower bar for the initiation of health policy in this country. And, and when I think about people, we argue incessantly about surrogate endpoints and do we really understand human biology that well? And 
And I think we understand the biology of the healthcare system much less well than we understand the biology of human beings. I think that there are as many adverse events to health policy as there are to drugs and devices. And yet we subject it to such, so much less rigor. And so what we are trying to do is to become an unbiased voice that can apply rigorous methodology to the evaluation of health policy. And our, our mantra is really that it takes physicians who have boots on the ground. It takes frontline clinicians to fully appreciate the potential for those unintended consequences. We think that policies are often made by people who have not, who spend the minimal time interacting with patients or caring for patients. And they often help policies don't have built-in evaluation mechanisms to them. And many of the unintended consequences that we think we've written about, we think are obvious to clinicians. If you just ask clinicians, they say, oh yeah, that's not unexpected. But then when we talk to people in policy, sometimes their, their minds are blown. They're like, no way. I, I don't believe that could possibly be the case. And usually, you know, my observation is that means that they're really disconnected from clinical care. In talking about some of the failures of modern health policy, Bobby makes a few critical points. Firstly, he says, quote, I think we understand the biology of the healthcare system much less well than we understand the biology of human beings, end quote. I can't agree entirely here, given that I am much more skeptical about how well we understand human biology. But the point is well taken. We really don't understand the healthcare system. Secondly, he thinks health policy research is hindered in a great way by the absence of frontline clinicians. He thinks many mistakes we make could be avoided by including, or at least talking to the people on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses. Again, as pertains to the COVID epidemic, I couldn't agree more. Looking at numbers tells you so much, but talking to the doctors in the emergency rooms and the ICUs tells you so much more. This is the story of how Bobby wound his way to the groundbreaking paper he published as a cardiology fellow in the New England Journal of Medicine on the remarkable 60% decline in heart attack rates. It was born out of his own observations and his conversations with his fellow clinicians. So what's the approach? I mean, so maybe we can sort of take an example, you know, yeah. something, maybe hospital readmission, something that you care about that you think is interesting. What's the, you're not doing a prospective trial, right? You're not going to design a trial to test whether an inner No, we policy. could. I mean, we, we yeah. haven't done that yet, yeah. but we could. And actually we've written about that and advocated for that. Um, but in the meantime, there is no such thing. At least none that I know of, or not not a good. There one. have been. It's not yeah. the standard. Yeah. Uh, the Oregon Health Experiment, you know, was a, effectively a prospective randomized trial of uh, insurance. There have been ways that policy have been rolled out in in you know the sort of bundled uh, payments for uh, hip replacements. I think was was rolled out in a semi-randomized fashion. And then there are other non-randomized designs that could be used to roll out policy in in what are called step wedge fashion, where you start. A hospital, you start a group of hospitals and then you implement them at different times. It just, all of these things can be, many things can be done to enhance the evaluability of health policy. But what we tend to do is actually just say, okay, I think this is going to work. Everybody's going to do this. Uh, and, and the hospital readmissions reduction program is the, is probably the, the policy that's been the nas- nationally the most influential that we've done a lot of evaluation for that, that that's the example. It just got rolled out 2010. Here we go. We're going to we're going to do this, you know, we're going to penalize hospitals for excess readmission rates for heart failure, MI and pneumonia. We're going to start it on this date, 
2000, 2012, and everybody's going to be subject to it. So just kind of to make this clear, the idea was that the assumption was that hospitals that had a higher rate of readmission, so patients would come to the hospital to get treated for pneumonia or heart attack. And if they got readmitted to the hospital within some period of time, it was a blight on the hospital. The assumption was that the hospital was substandard in their care, that they hadn't prepared the patients to be properly discharged. Is that sort of the, the, I was the model this was all built on. And so the idea was that if you disincentivized people, penalize them, if they came back, that people would would do a better job taking care of their patients in the hospital. That was the idea. That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened with that? Well, you know, the the first question is, does such a penalty actually change hospital behavior in a way that reduces readmissions? So we we wrote a study on this in 2016. I think it was published in Annals of Internal Medicine and, and two other groups also studied this. And you know, no surprises. Hospitals did reduce their readmissions when the penalty was implemented. I mean, these were profound financial penalties, many millions of dollars for many hospitals. It really adds up to more than a billion dollars, several billion dollars when you when you sum the total of all the hospital penalties. It was by, by far the biggest penalty ever introduced into healthcare legislation to incentivize hospital behavior. And it did reduce it, but it turns out that, you know, we looked at our our numbers for a while and said, why are our numbers different than these other two groups that are studying the same issue? We're not getting quite the same reductions in readmissions. And it turns out there's some artifacts about how we are coding some, you know, sort of arcane things about, um, about coding that, and I think it's become more clear that the reduction in readmissions has been not as strong as initially touted. But, but it that's, did. That's not the exciting. I mean, that's not. That's not the exciting part. No, to me, that's not the exciting yeah. part. The the thing that you're referring to is that it, it does appear that the implementation of the penalty, and we published this later this earlier this year, the implementation of the penalty appears to be associated with a rise in mortality after discharge for those patients with heart failure specifically. It was an association study. We can't prove causality. Temporally, it's a reversal of a long-standing trend and decline of mortality for heart failure. We're concerned about it. It raised some concern with us because, because many clinicians have told us, and we have experienced ourselves. In fact, the first author, Rishi Wadera, talks a little bit about, it's an anecdote, but he talks about his patient uh, who was readmitted many times. And one can clearly make this, you can, you can, talk, you can talk yourself into a narrative where uh, not readmitting patients would be harmful to patients. Patients don't want to come to the hospital. They come to the hospital for a reason. So the hospital is a good place to be to get care if you're sick. And and many emergency physicians in particular were telling us that they are feeling undue pressure to not admit patients who they otherwise would have admitted. And, and could that have resulted in harm? And so we see this association. There's a lot of debate about this. You know, people who follow this debate, there's been a lot of debate we were heavily criticized. We wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Most of the clinicians were saying, I agree with that. I see that. Uh, a lot of the health policy folks were quite quite, quite uh, critical uh, about our study, saying, you know, how can you be so sure about the causation about this? We weren't sure about the causation, but, but I think the language was such that they were thinking that we were implying a certain level of certainty. But there's, there's, there just can't be certainty. I mean, I think that that was part of our critique is that there was no way the legislation, the policy could be evaluated for someone to say, yes, I'm sure that that's safe, or no, I'm sure that that is not safe and doing harm to patients. And so what's the level of evidence that people require before they say, hey, maybe we should 
we ought not expand this policy. Maybe we should take a second look at this. That's been, in my mind, the real debate. I mean, I think a lot of people got hung up on the stats and, well, one study said this, another study said that, and what's the difference in the stats? I, I don't think that's really the relevant discussion. I think the discussion is how much certainty we do, do we need to change a policy. Do you think the health policy world has now been humbled in some sense that they understand that there's the potential for harm, that it's just because they think something is going to be beneficial to patients, which everyone everyone wants that. Everyone is hoping that it's going to improve care. But do you think now they've learned at all that there's the potential that even though it seems like it should be a good thing that it might turn out not to be good? You know, I think that our study just reinforces people's prior beliefs. So if you were a strong believer in the policy, I don't think we changed people's minds. Uh, if you were someone who came in who was skeptical about policy, this, I think, confirmed your, you know, supported your beliefs in it, unfortunately, you know, uh, so I just don't think the level of evidence was going to be strong enough from our one study that's associated. We acknowledge that to really convince someone um, who was already convinced before going in that what they were doing was good or what we were doing was was not good. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit and just play pretend for um, dress up for a sec. Just pretend that you're the health policy person. You're at CMS or you know wherever Medicare trying to decide about you see this trend you see this association between it looks like people coming back into the hospital and it looks like that's happening more in higher risk hospitals how, how do you approach the problem like if you could go back and do it over for them uh, how would you do it again like how, how would you approach trying to build the evidence or test the, the hypothesis really probably the better way to put it you know i think it has to do with how you roll out policy one of the ways is, is a little bit what we talked about. If you can randomize hospitals, if you can randomize groups to to be subjected to a policy, then that's ideally the best type of evidence that you can get. And then build in an evaluation period, some sort of pilot period, and say, we're going to evaluate this in, say, two or three years. And then we'll know whether or not this is effective, whether or not we should broaden it. And then short of randomization, there are other ways that we talked about, serially introducing it over time in different places, so you have these sort of natural experiments that you can leverage to get a better causal study. Okay. Um, that's one. The second is, to what extent were docs who actually take care of these patients engaged in the creation of this policy or the ongoing evaluation of this policy? I'm not sure that they were that engaged. And those who were engaged, I think, or supporters of it from the get-go. I mean, I don't think they have a neutral uh, party evaluating this. There are these CMS comment periods that are open to the public. I don't, I don't think those are great ways. I mean, I think building in certain participation from key stakeholders, I think, would be important going forward. And, and the finally is, is, at what time is there a built-in evaluation period for any of this stuff? I, as far as I could tell, if we didn't do that study, who was going to do that study? Often that those studies are done by groups that have vested interest in the success or failure of a policy. And, you know, we were, we considered ourselves a neutral party. We just wanted to know what was happening, which is interesting because we've been described as, as being biased, but I, you know, I, we had no, we have no vested interest in the success or failure of that program. I mean, we just wanted to confirm what, you know, another group had done a preliminary study you know, linked registry, sort of not the national sample, and, and they had seen these observations. So we wanted to see whether or not it was true in the bigger sample. But had it shown 
no change in mortality or decline in mortality, we would have published that with equal fervor. So um, I'm not sure that's true of, of everyone. The the parallels, as I'm sitting here listening to you, the parallels between what, what happens in nutrition, which is an area that I pay attention to, and what's happening in this world in health policy are, are tremendous. I mean, it's yeah. very faction-driven, very people with strong-held beliefs, a lot of politics. Yeah, uh, I saw you wrote about that recently. Yeah, well, and it was interesting because that piece I wrote about a nutrition intervention that I support and personally, you know, do myself. And I, I wrote it as uh, criticizing some of the people in, in the movement. And I, and I think the word movement probably reflects my bias that, that I think it's become too religious and too dogmatic and too tribalistic. And I think we probably can make that argument everywhere. So in the remaining time we have, because I want to be respectful of you needing to get home to your three children, I'm super curious about this last thing you were describing, your instrumental variable work. And I guess we all aspire to want to be able to do the best trials, right? We'd all love to have randomized trials. You've described really eloquently what you can do in lieu of randomization, but still in a prospective manner to evaluate an intervention. But what do we do where there are things we need to do every day, like eat or put our kids to bed? What, what do you, can you give us a little insight into sort of how you might be able to approach um, taking a morass and mass of epidemiologic data and making sense out of it to help guide some decision-making um, today where we don't have gold standard data or even silver standard data? Yeah, th- there's, you know, I, have a, I think about this a lot. We do, you know, a fair amount of comparative effectiveness research comparing A versus B in observational data. But we're very skeptical of the field too. I think that there are people out there who say it has to be a randomized trial or I don't believe it. And that's because the mass, vast majority of observational comparisons out there are just, I just, you know, they're not good. But I think that there are other observational comparisons which are, are highly valid and good. And so how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? One of them is that you have to understand the field to know if you can get a valid comparison between A versus B. So, so in our world, for example, there were, there were published studies on bare metal stents versus drug-eluting stents in coronary artery PCI. So opening blocked arteries of, uh, in the corner in, on the heart with two different types of stents. And these observational studies were published in the New England Journal. They were propensity score matched. You know, propensity scores... They sort of magically take away all these observational differences because you can create a table one out of propensity score that looks for all the world like these two populations are the same. Of course, they're only the same on the measured variables. They may be different on unmeasured ones. Um, but it looks like a table one out of a randomized trial. And they've been used, I think, to push confounded observational studies, you know, almost pull the wool over people's eyes and say that that comparison is valid. Um, they look like statistical hocus pocus. And I think that to many... And I think that they often produce the wrong results, but they produce the wrong results when the people who are deciding, the physicians who are deciding whether or not you're going to put in a drug-eluting stent or a bare metal stent are making that decision based on factors that are not measured. And who can tell us that? It's not the statisticians. You know, I I see a lot of, you know, I I really enjoy following Twitter statistics. Uh, I have a, you know, I'm not a statistician, but I certainly have a passion for it and interest in it. And I always want to learn. But I'm also surprised often about the fervor with which statisticians tell us that they can sort of identify the evils of poorly done analyses. And my mantra is that 
they certainly can do some of that. But without clinicians telling you what is actually, a, how I'm actually making my decisions, nobody is going to be able to tell whether or not analysis is confounded, unless they just assume that all observational analyses are confounded. But for this drug-eluting stent, bare metal stent a comparison, you and I both know that everybody got a drug-eluting stent unless you couldn't take your Plavix or you didn't have insurance or somebody thought that you were not a compliant patient for some reason. I mean, I, people used to say that, is that a bare metal stent or a drug lean stent patient? And that was just code for, do you think this patient is going to like come back and see a doctor? Yeah, or they have a brain tumor. Or they, or they have a brain yeah. tumor. Yeah, yeah. They bleed yeah. like crazy. They, yeah. they bleed like stink and, and surgery upcoming, whatever it was. But all of those, none of those factors are ever captured in registries and they confound an analysis and they're associated with mortality. And so those analyses showed that drug eluting stents were, were, had lower mortality than bare metal stents in the late 2000s. And those were totally confounded. But you would not know that unless you were a clinician in the field. But you had, to, you had to be a clinician in the field who also understood that the way that propensity scores fail is through this mechanism. And so it takes this combination, I think, of statistical knowledge and clinical knowledge to really vet those types of analyses. So, so that's starting point number one, is you have to sort of understand the field to be able to say what is sort of the wheat and what is the chaff. The second is you can get around some of this if you can find a good natural experiment, a good sort of quasi quasi experiment. And that's what we've done for some of these. Cause I think the confounding is sort of insurmountable in many cases. I don't think you can do a drug eluting stent, bare metal stent comparison controlling for confounders in any data set from the, you know, from during that era that will not tell you that drug eluting stents are much superior and save lives. And they don't, they don't, they don't save lives. And we, we know that from randomized trials. We have, we have the truth from the randomized trials at the time. And so that's why we know those analyses are confounded. But what we've taken advantage of in other uh, uh, ways is these natural experiments because people, it's not a good example for the drug eluting stent one, but for other things that we do, um, sometimes physicians just have their random preference. Uh, they like using drug A because it's on formulary or they like doing B because that's how they were trained, even though there's no evidence supporting it. And I think you and I both know that we make a lot of decisions that aren't based on data. And some of it is just random, what we choose. It's just how we were trained or whatever. And so if, if that sort of random, if you believe that that variation is random, you can exploit that variation kind of like a randomized trial. If the data set's big enough. The data set has to be pretty yeah. big. Yeah, it's got to be a big data set to do it. And so we've done a couple of these analyses using big national data sets where we think that a choice between A and B is sort of a random decision and preference based based on the doctor, and then use that to look at what is the outcome if you go to a high using doctor versus a low using doctor of a particular device or medication, and then you can that's called an instrumental variable approach. And if you leverage that, uh, you can you can sort of infer what the treatment effect is. Do you think that you'd ever be able to do something like that for a behavioral or lifestyle? intervention or is it just going to be hopeless? You could, you know, I haven't thought about those enough, but if you think that there are interventions that are sort of distributed randomly, randomly, the economists, this is their whole field of like thinking about ways to design things like this. So I, I you know, benefit a lot from talking to economists. There's a really well-known economist at MIT, Josh Angrist, who is one of the fathers of instrumental variables. And I struck up a relationship with him when I was, you know, finishing my training and we have lunch every once in a while. And he's, he's really helped me think a lot about this. And then, you know, Bapu Jaina, who's here at, at Harvard, we've done a little bit of collaboration, but 
he comes over here every once in a while and, and chat about ideas. And, you know, I like reading his stuff because he's always thinking very creatively about how to get at causal effects also. So I think we have a lot to learn from the economists about how to think about creative ways. But medical comparisons and observational research and traditional epidemiology has been rooted in this idea of let's just compare A versus B and then adjust. And that's going to fail for many comparisons. It's going to fail for diet. It's going to fail for lifestyle interventions where diet comes with a whole host of other factors that come with it that are impossible to measure. So I, I really have a question. I haven't thought about it enough for nutrition is, are there interesting natural experiments happening because there's randomness to how people are choosing just their diet? It can't sort of come with other things. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a lot, and I sort of ignore it, but there's a lot written about, you know, these indigenous peoples that, you know, have very distinct dietary patterns and they're kind of isolated. Of course, you can't begin to understand what else is different about these populations of people. And they're obviously also very different, you know, just genetically, but it's a very hard thing. And, you know, I think the, the other challenge, and you could say it's a challenge for prevention in general, not just, you know, lifestyle based or behavioral based prevention, but the time that it takes between the intervention and the event is so long that it's just, there's so much more chance of something else getting in the way, right? I mean, that by the time you actually see the outcome, it's even more confounded. Right. Uh, right. And it's doubly confounded for nutrition because people can't even really effectively know what people are actually eating because right. it's, yeah, there's a huge measurement problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like to talk about the that with nutritional epidemiology, the problem is we, the input is terrible, right? We know that people's recall is bad, but then the confounding, you know, is it that people who eat eggs also eat ketchup or smoke right. cigarettes or live or go to diners? You know, I mean, they're, you know, yeah. help, hopeless. And like you say, you can only adjust for so much. Right. And so I guess in closing, is there any hope that one of these, you know, new machine learning type approaches would be able to deconvolute these data sets in a meaningful way? Or is that just kind of basically more garbage in, garbage out? Like, do you see that as being a place where this is going to clarify things or really ultimately are we stuck making our best guesses and waiting for the randomized trials? Yeah, I I, I don't think machine learning is the answer to solving nutritional epidemiology's problems. I think nutri nutritional epidemiology has both, as we said, a measurement issue, a data issue, in addition to a confounding issue. And mas machine learning doesn't solve any of those problems. You know, it, it, I, it, what it finds is new associations, maybe is more powerful, powerfully finds uh, associations in less structured ways, but those associations may all still be confounded. And certainly if you don't have good data about what people are eating, there's, there's, there's nothing there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm pessimistic that that's going to be the answer. I'm less, you know, it's funny. I'm, you know, this is sort of the, the, this, this in mice thing that people keep talking about. I got to say that I've heard some talks on nutrition where I found the animal evidence and the preclinical evidence in, in, uh, and, and the, um, I would say the, the surrogate endpoints in humans that haven't taken all the way to the outcomes, but I found some of that data pretty compelling. So I, I do think that we're going to wait for, have to wait for the randomized trials, but I, I also think that there are randomized, like we're going to be able to build. And I think, I, I don't know the literature well enough. You should tell me. I think the surrogate outcomes for different diets, those randomized trials have been done, right? Looking at, you know, what, how are people's glycemic indices? You know, how, how are their glucose levels responsive? What do they do in short periods of time when you feed them one diet versus another in very highly controlled settings? So 
those remind me of like the very well done, highly specific device clinical trials where you have a very well manicured population. And, and those, I think, are informative about the biology. And one can make better inferences, much better inferences, I think, out of those. There's obviously this danger of relying on surrogate endpoints and short-term outcomes to project long-term outcomes, but that's a risk I'd rather take than taking some gigantic, messy observational data set and doing some, you know, eggs are bad, eggs are good study. So I, I, I would look much more. I think we talk so little. Those, those studies don't get a lot of press, which is the early, early clinical trials. I'm curious about what your opinion about it is of those and whether or not those are more informative. But I, you know, the every every new every week there's a new CNN headline about eggs are good or bad or bacon's good or bad, coffee this and that. And I just I just tune those out. I don't listen to any. Yeah, of those. I don't. T- I, I do the same. And I think we're doing you know ourselves in the world a disservice by continuing to make these circular arguments. Right. I mean, and it, um, what it does is degrades the public's trust in science and understandably. I mean, I, so I, I, my personal opinion is we have to make the best known decisions that we can today and we have to use the information we have right we can't this is the old don rumsfeld right you go to war with the army that you have not the army you wish you had which i think is like he's so quotable in so many different ways it's like it's that such a perfect statement because you got to go to war you can't wait around until you have like a new army you're going to war so we're going to have to make decisions about what to put food to put in our body based on the evidence that exists today. And so I think you're right about surrogates. And so I think, you know, the, the key is to begin to aspire to do better prospective trials. And you're obviously not going to be able to do, you know, in any time, any reasonable amount of time, you're not going to be able to do an outcome, you know, hard endpoint outcomes-based study on comparing two, two nutritional interventions. I mean, there've been a couple done. Predimed was one example. And of course that ended up getting, you know, retracted and then republished, which is all super bizarre, but that's sort of one, there are maybe a handful of others that have been done that have looked at hard endpoints. I think, um, but I'm, I'm a believer that despite what Steve Nissen says about the road to, you know, hell being paved with, with plausibility, I think we're just going to have to use that. I mean, we're, yeah. we're smart. And like you say, we understand biology. And as long as we are humble about it and understand that there are going to be caveats around all these things. I mean, the good news is that all the effect sizes for every one of these things, everything you mentioned, it, all these studies on eggs as an example, which is everyone loves to talk about, but all the effect sizes are teeny. So even if it is, you know, let's just say it is net harmful, the the magnitude of that harm is is small so i think that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable about it but but i think we all are, as a group are going to have to just decide that we're stop, we're not going to pay attention to this this um other stuff for now you know the plausibility thing is really interesting because you know i i i think pl- plausibility is one of those things that is clearly insufficient but it's necessary yeah. people have i think started to say that plausibility is a bad thing as opposed to plausibility just not being a sufficient, you know, a, a, a sufficient characteristic for for an intervention to be effective, and and people give examples where implausible things, you know, they give examples where where bioplausible things were then proven to be wrong, but everything that works is also biologically plausible, and far more things that are biologically plausible, I think, you know, I think that there are more examples of things that were totally biologically plausible and that worked than there are of, of these very high profile cases where biologically implausible things uh, didn't work by biologically plausible things didn't work. So, so, and if you have nothing to go on apart from that, I'd rather do something that's biologically plausible than, than not. 
in the absence of evidence. Uh, you have to do something. You got to put something in your mouth. Well, and drug companies are making decisions. I mean, they're, they're sort of ahead of the, the curve, I think, in some ways, because they're making decisions in both directions, risky decisions, potentially very costly decisions about moving programs forward or, or killing them based on surrogates. And there, there are a number of examples, I think, of stories where drugs have been killed based on a short-term sm- study in a small number of people on a surrogate endpoint. And yet they're making that decision. And yeah. so, you know, I think for me, I think, you know, here's a, here's a sort of hypothetical and and then we can wrap up. But imagine that we ran, we did a small randomized, prospective randomized controlled trial comparing two different diets. And we did it in, in a way where you could have some confidence over what people were actually going to eat, which is a whole different problem. But let's say we, we could do that. If at the end of that trial, diet A showed significantly different plaque volume on a CT angiogram than diet B, I think most people would probably say, you know what, I'm going with diet B. Like, I, I'm, I don't think that's unreasonable if you saw something like yeah, that. If, if you had no other, if that's no other you preferences. Yeah. If, if you had no other strong preference between diet A and diet B. I mean, if diet B were really I mean, terrible I, tasting, a, I, might, a, yeah, I, might, course, yeah, I might choose A. Of course. Um, but I mean, that, that to me is the kind of, I think that's the kind of thing that we probably can do in the short term, you know, yeah. in the me- short and medium term. Those are the kinds of studies that you could do. And I don't know what the right surrogate is, right? I don't know. It feels to me like imaging would be a good one feels like the again the drug companies at least for coronary disease the drug companies are using imaging yeah. a lot and they're using you know new forms of imaging and some stuff that's being done you know here and in inflammation in the vessel wall and things like that yeah. where you can really start to kind of get at hey look this this is enough to at least begin to guide decision making yeah so. I, I think the whole field is different than the the field of medications and devices when you're talking about diet for that simple reason that we just mentioned, which is you have to eat something. So, so everybody gets an intervention. And the question is, are you, are you going to, you know, we call it an intervention. What I mean is eating, everybody gets an exposure. And so are you going to base that exposure on no evidence or a randomized trial with a surrogate endpoint? It's not perfect, but it's better than no information. So I think as a starting point, that seems totally reasonable to me. And it's, it's much better information, as we said, than, than the observation. Well, it's better than bad information. And again, I, I'm tired of repeating the same thing over and over again. But it was as late as 1995 that the USDA guidelines on nutrition stated that added sugar did not increase your risk for type 2 diabetes or obesity. It did increase your risk of getting cavities, but that was it. And that was 20, you know, four years ago. It wasn't that long ago. So we clearly have been giving out bad information. So maybe the lesson is we give out no information for now, make the best judgment we can based on the available data that we have and aspire to do the right trials. Yeah, I think that's that's totally right. Awesome. Thank you, Bobby. Amazing, uh, as I expected it would be. Um, thanks. Yeah, it was really fun to join you. One of the themes that seems to come up with almost every one of the guests we've had over the first two seasons of Best Known Method is path splitting. That is, almost all of the guests have had at least one moment where they were presented with an opportunity to follow a certain path, a path they might have even seemed destined for, but instead veered to another, less obvious choice. We'll never know how people would have ended up had they chosen the other option. But it's striking to me how often these people made bold and risky choices to jump off the treadmill, so to speak. 
I think we are all quite fortunate that Bobby made the choices he did and ended up where he did. He's contributed meaningfully at every stage of his career and across an incredible spectrum of areas, from clinical medicine to health policy to clinical research. Given that this is the last episode of the season, and given the incredibly unusual circumstances we're under, I wanted to reflect on a few things and try to tie it all together. Let's start by walking back to the first episode of this season with economist Emily Oster. Bobby has clearly been influenced by economics and economists. He sees value in how they use natural experiments to generate quality data in the absence of randomized trials. And this is born out of his skepticism around attempting to correct for confounding in observational trials. For those of you who were paying attention in week one, you'll recall that Emily Oster told the story of Gideon Lack, an Israeli scientist who had observed a decrease in the incidence of peanut allergy in children in Israel. And he linked it to the behavior of eating a peanut snack that was very common in Israel and not anywhere else. It flew in the face of what was recommended elsewhere in the world, everywhere else. And he eventually went on to do an RCT, a randomized trial, and it confirmed that early exposure to peanuts reduced the incidence of peanut allergies. This was 100% contrary to what was the dogma worldwide. The story really highlights what Bobby said was critical to any attempt to adjust observational data, namely the necessity to talk to people on the ground who are getting their hands dirty. They will help guide what will be the important adjustments needed. Bobby also has strong feelings about biological plausibility and how it can be used as a tool. And finally, he's also a fan of using surrogate outcomes, not as a gold standard, but as a means toward getting to answers faster and more efficiently. And this brings me to my final point, and back to COVID-19. When we are trying to make decisions about what we eat or how we parent, things we have to do, things for which we cannot wait for gold standard data when there is none, we must, in the immortal words of Don Rumsfeld, go to war with the army we have and not the army we wish we had. So for this scary moment in the history of the modern world, perhaps the scariest for many of us in our lifetimes, We've heard from some scientists that we should not act on this pandemic until we have gold standard data. It's been a hot topic when discussing the extreme shelter-in-place measures enacted around the world, and particularly when to loosen them. I will exercise my editorial prerogative here and say that this is insanity. If we wait for gold standard data before making decisions on social distancing, we'll see deaths at numbers like we cannot conceive. So with that, I will leave you for this season with these final thoughts. Of course, be safe and stay home. Stay home as long as you can. We can control this thing, and there is now ample evidence from all over the world, communities that have succeeded, and also those, sadly, that have failed. Of course, this will be hard, and I want to end on a hopeful note. There are going to be many unforeseen upsides to this whole thing, and for me, the biggest of those is that we will connect in meaningful ways with people we love. Nothing is more important than community and I'm confident that we will see a tremendous strengthening in our communities. It will be uplifting, and it will be inspiring. And that is Best Known Method.